Well, I'm very uh, grateful for the opportunity to come down uh, and share with you today. Uh, As I said, it's uh, in part uh, a returning to the land of my fathers, although, of course, this is the northwest and that's a completely different country, I've been led to believe now. I actually I worked out uh, just yesterday uh, that this week uh, marks the 30th anniversary since I was last in Tasmania. Uh, it was this week uh, leading up to uh, the weekend uh, that we uh, my father fought, first brought myself and my sister back to uh, Tasmania to meet some of his relatives. Uh, And it also marks the 30th anniversary of the death of Lord Louis Mountbatten. So I'm hoping that this trip will be a bit more memorable for positive reasons. Coming amongst you. Now, um, our theme for uh, today is growing people, uh, growing churches. Uh, We'll be reading through Paul's letter to the Colossians. As, uh, as Chris said, to give us an insight into everyday theology. When I first started working for churches uh, some 20 years ago, uh, the latest ministry fad to blow in from America was the Willow Creek movement. Did, uh, did that come this far? You all heard about that? Yes. It uh, really was quite a phenomenon. Uh, A number of times I uh, went to Willow Creek shows and I had to say that's what they felt like. Uh, But you may remember uh, the basics of what was uh, spoken about, seeker-sensitive services uh, with uh, big music, uh, lots of drama, uh, very snappy production that at times made church feel a lot more like a TV show uh, than a meeting of God's people. And when I finished training uh, at Moore College, I started working for a church in Sydney that had adopted quite a lot of these techniques. Uh, It was very much a a Willow Creek style church. Now, thanks to the grace of God, uh, the particular part of that church that I was pastoring uh, grew at an amazing rate uh, over the three years that I was there. Some 300% the church grew uh, in that short time. But even at the time, and certainly looking back on it later, uh, I was never really sure that the majority of people involved in that church had really matured as Christians. That is, I'm not really sure how many people developed a stronger trust in God's promises made through the Lord Jesus. I'm not sure how many of their lives were significantly changed in that time or the extent to which their lives reflected the Lord Jesus uh, over and above the niceties of middle class life in the Sutherland Shire. When I moved to a different church in Canberra, uh, I was determined to see personal growth as more a feature uh, of the way that uh, our church life went. Uh, And I was very thankful to come across some material that emphasised the need for churches to be thought of like living plants, uh, living organisms. Uh, That uh, what a church really needs is for a number of different ingredients to be given to it in order to grow healthy as opposed to just growing larger. So there's, you know, we have to pay attention to the way that Sunday meetings run, the way that small groups run, the way that evangelism is done, the way that 
people participate in ministry. All these sorts of things are really ingredients of what makes uh, a church healthy. And it's when a church is healthy that a church will grow. And of course, uh, at basis of all this, the health of the church is only ever as good as the health of the people who are in it the health of their relationship with the Lord Jesus and the health of their relationships with each other. Now throughout uh, all this time, uh, God in his kindness just kept bringing me back to see that it was really in the scriptures themselves that the necessary ingredients uh, for growing people and growing churches were there there already. In fact, there's a fantastic amount uh, of resources available uh, to us straight from the Bible itself. And that's what I'd like to share with you today uh, as we read through the letter to the church in Colossae. We'll be reading through a letter, if you like, as a masterclass uh, on how to grow churches and grow the people in them in a way that brings honour and glory to God our Father through Jesus and by the power of his Spirit. What I hope is that you'll come to appreciate the way that the books of the Bible are not just the content uh, of our faith but actually the shape of it. We don't just read the Bible to find out important things about God uh, and about being a Christian, but we read the Bible in such a way as to shape our thinking and shape our practices, shape our attitudes and shape the way we read the rest of the Bible. It's prescriptive, not just illustrative. That is, the Bible shows us how to do theology. It isn't just the substance uh, of our theology. The great legacy of the faith once and for all entrusted to us uh, is the vision that the apostles had for how churches should be grown and how people within them should be grown. So uh, I want to begin uh, this morning by doing uh, a bit of work and I'm going to get you to do a bit of work there. So I hope you've all got uh, access to the Bible or at least uh, someone next to you has access to the Bible because we're going to spend some uh, time, particularly in this first session, just reading through uh, the Bible together. Uh, And what I'd like you to get a sense of is that Every New Testament letter has about five features, roughly, sometimes more, sometimes less, but each one of the New Testament letters has five features uh, that in a moment we're going to dig around uh, in the letter to the Colossians and see if we can identify. Now those uh, five features, and I just need to move some of my props here. Thanks Chris, can you uh, shove from the other side to make sure I don't knock down the uh, screen? Excellent. Okay. All right, what are these five features? Number one, oh, let's see, we go. This is where we try and get all the pencils to work. Okay. Number one is a gospel statement. You might want to write that down in your outline. Each one of the New Testament letters contains some kind of statement. This is is all I've got, I'm sorry. Uh, 
Is that better? Oh, there we are. Each one of the letters has a gospel statement. Okay, that's the first feature. Some statement about who Jesus is and to a certain extent what he's done. The second aspect is some kind of application some kind of application of this gospel statement to their particular context. Uh, Each one of the letters is written to a particular church or churches in a certain area and what you'll find is that the gospel statement is somehow applied to a particular issue that's in that church or churches. Now the third uh, aspect are the consequences. And this sort of goes in two stages. There's the consequences for character. That is, based on the gospel statement, how it particularly fits uh, the local context, there'll be consequences for the character of the people in that community, the kind of people they should be as a, in regards to how the gospel has affected their particular context. So, how they'll be, what sort of individuals they'll be. The fourth aspect is again consequences, but this time for their culture. That is, on the basis of how the Gospel has been stated and how it's been particularly applied to their context, there'll be consequences for the kind of people they should be and for the kind of relationships that they will have with each other. So the kind of people they will be individually, if you like, and the kind of, or the nature or the style of their relationships as a community. The fifth aspect is prayer. That is, throughout the letters, uh, in each one of them, there's lots of prayer, often at the beginning of a letter, but again throughout the letter and then at the end, Paul uh, or Peter or whoever has written the letter will pray a lot for the churches and encourage them to pray. Now actually there's a a sixth feature that just occurred to me uh, as I was reading uh, earlier this morning, particularly in the case of Paul's letters, and that is something about Paul's ministry. And we'll identify a bit of that uh, this morning. That is often, as you read through the letters, uh, Paul will reflect on his ministry. So Paul's ministry is kind of a sixth one. Of course, Paul reflecting on his ministry is not in the letters written by Peter, uh, as you can imagine. Uh, But considering that 13 of the uh, 27 books in the New Testament were written by Paul, it's a, a reasonably common feature throughout. But on the whole, what we're looking for is these five characteristics here. A gospel statement, some kind of application of that statement to the particular context, then the consequences 
consequences for character of the people involved in the church, the consequences for their culture, uh, and finally uh, some prayer, either the beginning, the middle or the end. So these are the uh, five basic features that uh, make up uh, apostolic ministry uh, to the churches with whom they are involved. And I'm going to set you uh, a bit of a task now, uh, just with the person next to you or in a small group around you. I want you to open up the letter to the Colossians uh, in your Bibles there and read through, you know, glance through it. You know, you can use the chief headings if you like to help. See if you can identify these five features in the letter uh, as it's uh, printed there in your uh, Bible. Just skim through and see if you can find a, a, a particular gospel statement, some kind of sense that the gospel statement is being uh, applied to the church in Colossae itself. Uh, then the consequences of that for the kind of people they should be and the kind of culture that they should have. And of course along the way, uh, any, in, any times where Paul specifically prays for them and the kinds of things that he prays for. Okay, so everybody know what to do? Just skim through chat to the person next to you or in a little group around where you're sitting uh, and see if you can divide up uh, the letter to the Colossians in this way. Yeah? That's right, he does. That's right, he says Paul's letters are hard to explain, <laughs> hard to understand, but they are scripture. <laughs> Alright, so have a look at that. Just, is that the whole lot? No, the whole lot. Open up your Bible and go through the whole lot. And see if you can identify these uh, five features that I've uh, listed on the board here. So one more time, look for the gospel statement, some kind of particular statement about who Jesus is uh, and what he's done. Some sort of particular application of that statement to the church in Colossae. The consequences for the kind of people they should be the consequences for the kind of culture they should have and the extent to which Paul is praying for them or encouraging them to pray. So off you go, have a look. Okay, how's everybody going? Got a bit of an idea? A vague notion? Looked over the shoulder of the person next to you and found what they were writing? Alright, well let's see if we can work it out then. Uh, Anyone who feels brave enough, where do you think the gospel statement is in the letter to the Colossians? Yes, sir? Yeah, that's right. Somewhere around uh, chapter 1, 15, through to, say, verse 23, 24. That's what I would guess. I mean, there's a bit of a... In, in one respect, we're going to go from 13, all right, we'll say that. I was just going to say, in one respect, when we try and, when we try and pick out a chunk, uh, we run the danger of splitting a sentence in half and Paul's sentences go on and on and on sometimes. So roughly from about uh, chapter 1, verse 13, through to round about uh, verse 23 or 24, 
Now, what about uh, the point where Paul specifically applies that to the context in Colossae? Any uh, guesses there? Yeah? 2-8. Uh, 2-8. Eight. Eight. Yeah, 3-2. I'm guessing verse 23. 2-8, 3-23, to verse 23, that sort of chunk. Have a look, see what you think. Alright, okay. Now, what about uh, the consequences for character that this gospel statement and its application have? What, where do we see Paul addressing the consequences for the Colossians' character? Where would you see that? Chapter 3. Yeah, 3. 1. Yeah, I'm thinking 3, 1 to 17. Uh, in that whole section, Paul's going to talk about the consequences of character and then the consequences for the kind of culture that they will have. 18, yeah, 3, 18 through to, let's say, uh, 4, 6. Oh, that's a bit squashy there. 3, 18 through to 4, 6. Now, what about uh, Paul's prayers? Where do we see those in Colossians? Yeah? Chapter 1. Which, which bit of chapter 1 in particular? Yeah, verse 9, I think, to verse 11 is specifically uh, one prayer, although it's, you know, it's kind of peppered throughout uh, all the beginning of chapter 1. Anywhere else? 4 12. Yeah. I'll say 4.12 and following there. Now, uh, because it's a Pauline letter, where do you think the uh, bits are where Paul reflects on his own ministry is in this letter? Yeah? 124. Yeah, everybody have a look there. From 124 through to 20, 29, did I hear? Yeah. 2 5 maybe? Yeah. yeah, that sounds about right, doesn't it? Yeah, okay. Now, of course, there's reflections about Paul's ministry all the way through, uh, from the very first verses, you know, right through to the very end. But there's a specific chunk, and often you'll find that uh, in a Pauline letter, there'll be some particular chunk uh, of the letter where he'll reflect on his own ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, it may or may not concern the particular church that he's writing to, but there's always some kind of reflection on that. Often that's because... Um, you know, Paul's very conscious of having come from being a persecutor of the church. Uh, and when you read through the uh, Acts story, you see that the first thing uh, that the uh, uh, disciples uh, and the other apostles had to do is put out some of the fires that Paul had been starting. He uh, goes up to Damascus, confronts the Lord Jesus there, and he immediately goes into the synagogue and starts preaching uh, the Lord Jesus. But all the other Christians who are in Damascus are thinking, this is the guy who's come to put us in jail. What's going on here? So 
he bears that burden with him uh, all his life it seems and it's reflected in various times and in various letters uh, as he uh, really in some respects wants to show people that he really is genuine uh, and that his ministry is a genuine ministry. Now we'll uh, talk a bit more about that uh, as we go along but these are the basic sort of breakup uh, that I wanted us to uh, get first up uh, the, the various features of particularly the letter to the Colossians but in the features of Paul's letters in general. So when you uh, go away from here uh, and uh, read other parts uh, of the Bible if you're say preparing a series of Bible studies uh, or you're going to preach uh, on one of Paul's letters have a look for these features. Have a look and see if you can identify them and how they particularly stick together in the letter that you're looking at. That'll give you, if you like, a big picture sense uh, of how Paul's letters fit together and the kind of purpose that they're supposed to have. You see, if each one of them has this kind of a purpose, you can see that it's geared towards helping people grow in their knowledge and love of the Lord Jesus and helping them grow how to live together. So the uh, epistles themselves are designed uh, to fit this kind of a purpose. Now before I go on, does anyone want to ask a question uh, about that? Yeah? But that's possible. Uh, often uh, this chunk that we've got here in Colossians 1, 15 to 23 is sometimes referred to as the Colossian hymn. Uh, and some scholars think that it's actually some kind of confession that the early church was using uh, and Paul sort of incorporated. Now, that may be the case, but it doesn't make it any less credible uh, and neither does it mean that uh, Paul's just making things up as he goes along. Uh, it's clear uh, as we read through the various letters that Paul was inter- with interaction, especially with the church in Jerusalem. It was actually very important for his ministry to show that he had had a good relationship with them. After all, that's where uh, the gospel came from. Uh, so it's you know, highly likely that there's been some kind of interaction between him and them. Uh, and yet, as we read the rest uh, of the, um, particularly the Acts story, uh, we see the, the marvellous sovereignty of the Lord in choosing someone like Paul because he's a gun Pharisee. He knows, the, he knows the Bible inside and outside uh, and uh, it's up to him a lot to help the rest of the church understand the significance of the scriptures that they were reading. So really Paul's a brilliant choice for somebody to go out and start planning churches because he's, um, he's not just enthusiastic, you know, he's not just crafty. He's been trained since he was about this high in the reading of the scriptures and understanding them. And so when he talks about his ministry, it's often uh, when he uh, speaks to the, uh, the Corinthians in uh, chapter 1, verse 15, he, says, he talks about the gospel I proclaim to you that Christ died according to the scriptures and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So there's a real sense, I think, where we can have confidence that uh, Paul's ministry is his own ministry. Uh, and whatever contribution or whatever interaction there might have been amongst Christians at those at that point in time, and clearly for fellowship reasons there would have been, uh, Paul's a significant player uh, in the shaping of people's understanding. But a uh, fair question nonetheless. One more? Yeah? Um, I just wanted to make a comment for you to respond to. Um, if I was a false teacher that was wanting to learn, get people to 
read the scriptures a particular way. The one thing that I'd probably do at the very beginning is to provide a framework mm-hmm. within which for them to, to um, uh, interpret the scripture that I'm bringing towards them, which is, of course, exactly what you've done. And I'm hoping you said, hoping you know, I was teaching, but do you want to just respond to that statement? Well, we could say that the best way to read the Bible is incoherently. But uh, I think what I've tried to do here is to show you how uh, what I'm wanting to give you is something to test. I want you to take this away and read the rest of the Bible and see if it's actually there. Uh, So uh, in producing this kind of a structure, what I'm hoping to do is help you to see that all those little verses or passages that you might read from time to time, uh, say in your daily Bible reading or things like that, often when we just read through a little bit of the Bible at a time, and especially if we come across various theories about where uh, you know uh, the gospel tradition might have come from if you're reading a Bible commentary or things like that, I actually just want you to help you to see that the Bible itself does fit together. Uh, and there's a pattern to apostolic ministry that is the way that the apostles taught uh, the churches that is that is applicable for us uh, and is in fact prescriptive of the way that we ought to read the scriptures ourselves so yes, uh, in one sense there's a risk uh, I could be a terrible heretic but that's why I've given you this structure to take away with yourselves uh, and in fact I was thinking if we have time later on this afternoon we might actually try this with a different letter uh, a different one of Paul's letters and uh, have a go uh, at fitting it all together but in the meantime really what I want you to uh, want to help you to see is that there is a coherence to the way that the New Testament uh, letters are written and it's based on an apostolic precedent uh, that the disciples, the, the job of the apostles and the disciples was to take what they'd understood of Jesus, apply that to a particular context, and draw out from that consequences for the life that churches would have. That's their job description, if you like. And they're always starting from this you know, who Jesus is and what he did. That's what makes. Uh, that's why we decide to have the New Testament letters in the Bible because they have this kind of grounding in the person and work of Jesus, application of that uh, event to the life of Christians throughout the world and the kind of significance or consequences that that would have. Okay? Fair question. You can decide at the end of the day whether we should uh, have a burning. Although I think, I think the weather is on my side. Oh, it was pretty wet, wet around here. All right, well, let's press on then uh, to uh, finish off uh, our first session this morning. I th- we've got until a quarter past, haven't we? Yeah. All righty. Well, then let's consider this church in Colossae uh, that Paul has uh, written to. Now what we learn from Paul is uh, how to understand the meaning and significance of the person and work of the Lord Jesus. As we read each one of these letters, uh, we get a sense uh, of how the significance of the person and work of Jesus applies to particular contexts. And that in itself is worth drawing attention to. Often when we think of application, that's that bit in a sermon where the preacher tells us what to do. Now we're just waiting for the tell me what to do bit and that's the application in the sermon. What we find I think 
in the uh, epistles themselves is that the application is a bit more sophisticated than that and that what um, Paul wants to do is apply the significance of Jesus' person to a particular problem or a particular issue that the church might have had itself and sort out or untie that knot first before coming to the consequences of how, what kind of people they should be and how they should live together. So when I say application, I, I mean less of this is what you should do, but this is how the gospel affects where you are your understanding of who God is, your understanding of what life and spirituality is. He wants to sort of uh, particularise there. Now, as far as we can tell uh, from what uh, biblical and historical scholars have discovered, the church in Colossae is probably just a group of people who meet in the home of Philemon. You know, that really short letter uh, towards the end of uh, the New Testament there. Philemon, it seems, was a, a... um, householder living in Colossae and like uh, so often happened in those days he planted a church in his own household because a household is much more than just mum and dad and 2.3 children uh, it's a whole expanded network of people related to one another uh, to a greater or lesser extent plus slaves or servants uh, and that sort of thing together so in one respect Philemon's household could have been as big uh, as the group as we see here And yet, that's all there is in all of Colossae, is this small group of people uh, to whom Paul has written this letter in the uh, household of Philemon. Now, uh, religious life in Colossae uh, was quite a strange beast. It was a bit of a cocktail of pagan religions. Uh, The Colossians believed in a, a great god, you know, one great God, but this great God was very distant and unreachable uh, by ordinary people. So what happened instead was that uh, ordinary people used to interact with this great God through the means of angels or spirits or sometimes even demons. And the uh, aim, the goal of their religious practice was, was really to try and get these angels or spirits to work for them. You know, often in the most mundane sort of things, you know, please help the woman next door fall in love with me. Or, you know, please get rid of my next door neighbour, he's a pain in the neck. Or please help my business to go well. Or please help our army to defend our city. Those sort of day-to-day mundane things. Please help me get better because I'm feeling sick. And their whole religious uh, program was designed to interact with these angels or spirits or these sort of things to get them to work for them. Uh, One of the principal means they used was magic. Uh, So archaeologists have found a number of different... Uh, you know, medallions and things like that which had names of angels on them and it's understood that, you know, if you got hold of one of these medallions and it had the name of a certain angel on it that gave you control over that angel Uh, and so you practice magic in order to get some angel to be, you know, your guardian if you like on your side to help you make your way through life. Other parts of their uh, religious practice involves uh, asceticism, that is, you know, uh, 
treating the body harshly, going without food, uh, starving themselves or beating their bodies with hyssop or those sorts of things to sort of try and get rid of the, the bad feelings or the bad things they do. So, uh, you know, obviously if you're a bad person, the angels won't work for you. Uh, so in order to win them over, to win over these spirits and uh, principalities, you've got to sort of discipline yourself uh, in order to be in good shape to be able to do business with them. Uh, and then there were other things like what's referred to as mystery cults. It's always a bit hard to know what a mystery cult is. It's a bit of a mystery, which is not ironic really, is it? But it involves uh, certain particular groups of people who have secret knowledge Now, as you can imagine, uh, controlling spirits and practicing magic and that sort of thing, it's going to involve people who are on the, in the know. Oh, you need this medallion or you need this particular incantation in order to get this angel to do that job for you. So, you know, there'd be an incantation, as I say, for getting the woman next door to fall in love with you or that sort of thing. You go along and participate in one of these mystery cults in order to get the secret knowledge to know how things would work for you because you don't want your neighbour to know how to do this otherwise he'll throw the spell back over your fence, you know, it'll be terrible. Anyway, so there's these kind of, this vast menagerie uh, of different kind of practices in order, was in place in order to help ordinary Colossians get by in life. This is the kind of religious context, it would seem, that Paul is writing his letter. And so... <coughs> Paul writes to them, uh, and as, uh, as I've mentioned before, and you can turn now into your outline if you haven't already done so, uh, we're on page three, you can see some of the text there. One of the first things that Paul has to do is to establish uh, his relationship to the church. Now, uh, as I pointed out before, you can see in uh, chapter 1, verse 25, Paul is keen to point out that his ministry is something that's been appointed by God. Chapter 1, verse 25 says, I've become its minister, that is the Gospels, according to God's administration, sorry, the church's minister, according to God's administration that was given to me for you. So this is Paul's mandate, if you like, to minister to the Colossians or to all the Gentiles in general. Uh, it would seem that the church in Colossae was probably planted while Paul was doing his ministry in Ephesus. So he's in that region for about three years uh, and he plants churches all the way throughout it and it would seem that Philemon must have come into contact with that ministry in Ephesus and brought some of it with Epaphras back to uh, Colossi, but we'll uh, uh, talk about that in a minute. So the gospel has spread throughout there, and Paul's wanting them to understand that his role in it uh, is by God's special decree. Now, Paul, of course, was not one of the original twelve. Uh, he was instead specifically chosen to witness uh, to the Lord Jesus amongst the Gentiles, and we see this uh, in Acts chapter nine, verse fifteen. Acts chapter nine, verse fifteen. Ananias uh, has a vision from the Lord and the Lord says to Ananias go and see Paul for this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, kings and sons of Israel. And again Paul himself says uh, in Acts chapter 22 verse 21 Acts 22 verse 21 
The Lord said to Paul, go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So Paul's specific brief is to be an apostle, a witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, to the Gentiles. And he sends this uh, message to the church in Colossae as a vital part of God's plan to spread the gospel throughout all the world. Now Paul has never met these people, but he sent Epaphras to share the gospel with them. Epaphras was one of Paul's fellow workers. Possibly Paul sent him from Ephesus to Colossae with Philemon to basically plant a church there, start spreading the gospel. And uh, we, Paul acknowledges this in uh, chapter 1, verse 7 of Colossians. We read there, You learned this from Epaphras, that is the Gospel, our much-loved fellow slave. He is a faithful minister of the Messiah on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we first heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. So Paul's relationship to the particular church in Colossae is really mediated through the person of Epaphras. He's the original evangelist who went there. But Paul wants to add his own apostolic element to that ministry that's going on there to give it greater strength. Uh, and give it a better insight into the scriptures and a a stronger understanding because, as we see there, uh, Paul wants to present everyone mature in Christ. That's his goal. It's his goal for the Gentiles throughout the world but also his goal for the uh, Colossians as well. He wants to present everyone mature in Christ. The Gospel is the revelation of God's purposes for the world, his secret purposes if you like, that are fulfilled in the person and work of Christ Jesus. Paul's saying if you've ever wondered what God is on about, what is his plan for the world, how does he care for us, is he actually going to do something, this great distant God that you thought you knew about, he has come close to us in the Lord Jesus in his own son. God himself has come into the world in order to act for his people. So the gospel is the the goal of this apostolic ministry therefore is uh, to present Jesus to the people as God acting for them in the world. It's to present everyone mature in their relationship with God through Jesus uh, and by the Holy Spirit. And what we'll see as we look over the rest uh, of this letter is that being mature, being mature as a Christian, is being able to trust God in the face of seemingly more attractive offers like heavenly mysteries or heavenly powers and to be able to tell the difference between God's will and human traditions. So maturity for the uh, Colossians will flow out of these kinds of things and it will show itself in the kind of people they are and the kind of culture in which they live. That's what it means for Christians to grow. They grow in their knowledge and love of God that comes to them through the Gospel, understanding how it applies to their particular situation and it's reflected in the kind of people they are and the kind of culture that they have. And so Paul uh, talks about this as teaching the whole counsel of God. That is, he wants the the, uh, the church in Colossae to have... 
a well-rounded understanding of what it means to know God, to love God, <coughs> excuse me, and to live for God. Knowledge is not just information, it's about personal experience and ability. I know God, I know God as my Father, I know God in the way that I act towards him and towards others. So this is the kind of... uh, Ministry that Paul is wanting to put before the Colossians, the kind of his idea, if you like, of what it means to grow people uh, and to grow a churches. So that, as he says in chapter 1, verse 11, they'll be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might, so that they may have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to the Father. This is what Paul wants for them, to mature as Christians, to grow as individuals, but as a community, so that in all things they might live joyfully, giving thanks to the Father. I can see now that our time is up. Uh, We might stop there. If you've got a question, just write it down now and I'll come back to it uh, in one of the later sessions Uh, but I think uh, we need to finish now for morning tea or lunch or something? Lunch time. Okay, there you go. Why don't I just pray uh, before we uh, go to lunch? Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word that has come to us through the Apostle Paul. We thank you for his faithfulness uh, and his desire to serve you by seeing people mature in their relationship with you. And Father, we thank you for the testimony of that faithfulness that we here uh, in Tasmania, so many hundreds of years later, thousands of years later, can still be blessed through this ministry that Paul carried out uh, in your name and for your sake. Please bless us. As we share food together now, we pray, Lord, that even today this might be a feast in your honour and glory. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.